Welcome to Prepare for Takeoff. I'm your creator and host, Terry L. Cyrus, where the podcast is dedicated to amplifying black excellence by showcasing proven professionals and rising entrepreneurs. Every week, we drop a new episode at 7 a.m., and we're showcasing people who are making a difference in the community. And this week, we have somebody that's an esteemed professional. She's somebody that's pouring into the youth of Today, our, our, our leaders of tomorrow, and that person is none other than Dr. Latoya Faison. Dr. Faison, how you doing today? I am doing great, Terry. Nice to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, thanks for, you know, stopping by, spending some time with us. Of course. Yeah, so um, we wanted to, you know, give our mm-hmm. listeners and viewers the opportunity to uh, have a b- better understanding of, of your backstory, which is mm-hmm. illustrious. Um, you're an educator, and I commend you for that. So uh, I guess walk us through how you um, found your way on the campus of Virginia State University as a professor in English. As a professor. Wow, that's, that's going to be an interesting backstory. <laughs> so one, I was born in rural Southampton County, Virginia. Uh, born uh, Southampton County sits pretty much on the uh, the North Carolina South Carolina North Carolina uh, Virginia border, and so I was raised by my grandparents, and um, I learned early on that education was key. I was born in 1973, so a child of the 70s. We're talking about you know growing up post desegregation, post integration, and so I've always believed that education was key. Um, I was fortunate enough to be a pretty good student. Um, school was never really hard for me, but I did have to work at it. It wasn't like I was a child prodigy or genius or anything like that. But I think most importantly, I loved school. And my grandparents who raised me um, typically had not had formal education. Um, they came from sort of that sharecropping background where they didn't really get to attend school. So growing up in my house, um, my aunts, I had aunts who had actually gone to college and become like a teacher or gotten other degrees. But for me, I knew that to get out of that rural setting, education was going to be the key. Um, Early on, I wanted to work in the medical field. I wanted to be a nurse once. And when I actually went to college, I wanted to, I was pre-med for a while, but I was literally that kid in high school, that kid who was typically in everything. Um, I was student government president, National Honor Society. I played on the softball team. You know, I played in the band. I was just kind of that kid who was, but it was a small town. So, you know, when you're in small towns, the competition is not that stiff. <laughs> and so, but I left Southampton County. Um, I love Southampton County because those people made me. My grandparents, the community, uh, small towns are such that basically you get that village feeling, a uh, whole village raising a kid. And that was me. I was pretty much a popular kid. Um, everybody knew me then and they know me now. Many of those people have, have transitioned, but I left Southampton County. Um, I met my, I think I, I met my husband in the sixth grade. We became high school sweethearts and that's a part of my story. So I have to tell it. We were high school sweethearts. He went on to Hampton University a year ahead of me. And then I, a year following, went to the University of Virginia. Um, I had not taken a tour of UVA. <laughs> I just knew I needed to go to college. And so I applied for several colleges and I went with whoever gave me the best financial aid package. Um, I probably likely would have followed him to Hampton had they given me more money, but it wasn't meant to be. I went to UVA, absolutely loved it there. I decided in my second year to be an English major um, because I did really well in those courses. Um, I wasn't doing horrible in the sciences, but you know, you want to be in something that you're doing well. 
um, sciences were hard. Um, and it was UVA. UVA is a, one of the most rigorous institutions in the state of Virginia. Um, so I majored in English there. Um, after that, we got married. Uh, he was shipped overseas to South Korea for his first duty station. And so I took that time to go on to graduate school. And I got a master's in English in a year. Um, once I completed that master's and he came back, we kind of started our life together. But that's also where my teaching started. That's where I first started working in uh, in education, uh, per se. And so I have literally been teaching since 1998, everywhere we've been. We've been in the Carolinas. We've been stationed on the north side of Chicago. Uh, we've been to Southeast Asia. I taught in Korea. And so we have raised three boys along the way. Uh, we have two uh, young adult sons, 25 and 24, and we have a 15-year-old. So teaching has been uh, a passion of mine. Uh, I was able to see how education was so instrumental in my own life and in the lives of other people around me. And so I, I really wanted to kind of sow that seed for other students. And so teaching came natural. You could say I was probably a leader in high school and I love to talk, but uh, I also love to write. Uh, I, I dilly dally with poetry and creative writing, even as a child, because, you know, I have sort of that life that you would maybe hear about or read about in a Toni Morrison novel um, because black life is filled with creativity. Um, so I do have stories. I have stories that I have yet to write. Most of my creative writing has been poetry. I have published about 14 books. Uh, my last book that I published last year was my actual uh, historical doctoral research um, titled after Carter G. Woodson's book, The Miseducation of the Negro. The title of my book is The Missed Education of the Negro, uh, because I focus on black segregated education um, and just all of the wonderful positives that came out of that, that you know, that, that chaotic era. Um, so I'm a professor, I write uh, poetry, creative nonfiction, and I've literally been teaching, it's been over 20, 20 years now. And so I've been in the game long enough to see that education is changing. Mm. Um, and it changes, you know, it evolves. But the, what, 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 what I'm experiencing now is like a huge change. Um, we've had COVID happen to us. And so that has literally touched uh, not just our students, but people in a different kind of way that affects how we learn. Um, and it's kind of stagnated us a little bit. So that's my backstory. Um, I'm a person of faith. And um, I just believe that I believe in upward mobility. And I know the history of our people in this country. And that every day is still a struggle and that we've come a long way, but we still have a long way to go. And so most of what I write about in my work has to do with black life or social justice or Southern experiences, my own experiences um, as a black female. And so that's kind of who I am. It's all no matter what you read of mine, you will sort of get that experience, whether you're reading the poetry um, or the creative nonfiction. I love literature. I love black writers. And so you can find me pretty much talking about that or hanging around folk who are into that type of scene. I'm not a spoken word artist, but I do love spoken word artists. So I support. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And you know what? I, I, I'm just so, you know, I, as, as I'm listening to your story, I'm just uh, one of the things that kind of stuck out is despite the, the background that you grew up in, you, mm -hmm. you had that spirit 
mm-hmm. of upward mobility. And I think a yeah. lot of times people think that that upward mobility may only be found in large metropolitan areas, large oh, cities. No. And, you know, you growing up in a rural area, mm-hmm. I'm from West Virginia myself. Mm-hmm. And sometimes when you grew up in an area and you are, you're, you know, you're, 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 made, you're made to understand in an early age that there are limited possibilities. Yes. Then it makes you want to exceed what your reality is by mm-hmm. way of saying, how can I propel myself to an environment other than the one that I know? I think sometimes people who live in large metropolitan areas is probably the equivalent of many freedoms that we take for granted now. Yeah. Like, um, if they, they probably would be rolling over in their graves realizing that there's so many people that don't take full advantage of the things that they fought for because we take it for granted because, okay, our entire adult lives, we all have, have had the opportunity to vote. So the same way, if you grew up in Brooklyn, you may just take for granted all of the possibilities that you can explore and, and who you can become where when you're in a small area, when you're in a small rural community, you're like, okay, I'm going to have to, it's not a current. I have to be the current, (laughs) you know, I can't just say, well, let me just roll with the current and have the current take me from point A to point B. I have to be the current. And as a result of that, I'm sure you show up with, you know, with, with, with this glow that, 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 that allows you to illuminate onto others. So having gone to UVA, as you mentioned, the, 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 the curriculum there is extremely rigorous. So one of my questions that I wanted to ask was, was there, was there an adjustment for you from coming from, you know, where you were in the rural part of Virginia to this, to, to the rigors of UVA's curriculum? That's where I was going next because you were talking about being from a small town. Now, this is not the, uh, this is probably not the experience of everyone who grew up in a small town because we all know that we are the Tom, so the, the, the total sum of our experiences, right? You know, so, you know, having come up in a household with grandparents who were not formally educated, I was not surrounded by books. Children who, you know, have teachers as parents, you typically are in a house possibly filled with books and some other things. Um, because mom and daddy had not gone to college, um, there were some limited things. And they did try to expose me, like every other person's parent, to so many things in the community. They exposed me to people who had gone to college. So I always had the example of people who had gone and done, you know, X, Y, and Z. But to answer that question, yes, you don't, sometimes students don't know they're poor. Because when everybody is like you, you think everybody's just, this is how it's supposed to be. Um, they're, believe it or not, they're little colored kids who don't know that they're black. Yes, right. <laughs> but, but they soon find out. Um, one of the things that I found out when I set foot on the campus of UVA was how um, I had not had the exposure to some of the academics that my counterparts had. Um, all of my counterparts who had come from, say, Northern Virginia or some of the the larger areas, they had had exposure to tons of uh, academic courses that I didn't, you know, rural areas. I understand it now, you know, looking back, I know now that um, the education game is all about money, you know, and schools are funded based on where they're located, based on zip codes, based on so many different things, tax, you know, taxes. You know, I live in a county right now where these kids have more than they need. But I live right sister to a, a, a city that doesn't have the same resources. So um, now what I can say about my rural county is we had some top notch educators. Um, if you were coming up in the 70s and you had black teachers, you had some teachers who had gone to college, who had learned a different way. 
um, they came from black excellence. And so they took that black excellence and they poured it right back into us. So I had like culturally and socially a top-notch education, but the things that I that I that I missed out on were probably some of the some of the, the academic or more advanced classes. We had honors uh, when I was coming through, but many people that I went to UVA with had already had AP and had placed out of um, things. So it was an adjustment. Um, it was an adjustment. But if you go into a situation like that, not knowing that there's an adjustment, you can just kind of be coasting along thinking you're doing, you know, struggling. And so that's one of the things that I think colleges do so much better at now. Colleges like UVA. Um, you know, you bring it because it's not just black students who come from rural areas that are struggling. It's white ones, too. We all came from the same school. Um, and so, you know, you don't know how deprived you are until you get with some people who have had it all. Right. And so there was that adjustment. But UVA was definitely uh, some of the best four years of my life. Um, and I tell people I didn't experience, um, you know, there was racism there because it was black and white and it's America. and It's Virginia. But I didn't experience any blatant racism. Uh, we were always standing up for things at UVA. Uh, the Black student body president's presence was really strong there. And we had uh, a program that was started um, there called the Peer Advisor Program. We had an Office of African-American Affairs, which was so helpful. Um, but I had come from a situation in Southampton County where the racial mix was, was 50. It was kind of 50-50. That's what it felt like. But uh, we, I didn't feel like a minority so much coming from Southampton because, as I said, I was student body president. I, I sailed um, to the top. I graduated number seven in my class of only about 135 people. Um, so I just I was used to competing. And so it was no problem for me to go to a UVA and survive and make it and like it. Um, but I have taught at two HBCUs. And uh, my husband went to an HBCUs. There's ton tons of things. There's an experience you can get at an HBCU that you just can't get at a, at a, at a white college. Um, I never attended one. Um, I never considered attending one. Um, but, you know, I got my doctorate here at Virginia State where I'm actually teaching right now. And so my, my thoughts have changed on, in terms of what uh, HBCUs are, what they provide. Uh, I, I strongly believe that we still have a need for HBCUs for sure, because we serve a lot of students at HBCUs that may not even be given an opportunity someplace else. And so I, there's totally a need for that. And you get a lot of nurturing at HBCUs. I had no professor who I felt like was my mother at UVA. Not a single. I had some nice professors and I had some. I mean, I really did. But there was not a single one of them that I felt uh, saw me as their child. And so when you come to an HBCU, that's what you get. Um, you know, I look at all of my children like they are mine, all of my students as if they're mine. Some of them come from Brooklyn. They come from everywhere. And, you know, I always tell them you're in this classroom to get more than just an English education to learn how to write papers. Um, if you get into trouble while you're here, call me, you know, whether it's sickness or whatever. Um, and so that's, I think, the feeling that we bring to HBCUs. But that feeling also came out of those black schools that I did my research on. Um, that's what segregated education was like. And so I love that the HBCU provides that continued experience of what we had before Jim Crow. All the things that we lost in integration, we still have them at HBCUs. 
That's a very good point. I attended a HBCU myself. I attended West Virginia State University. Um, and we used to play you guys in football until we ran a score up on you. <laughs> I think one homecoming, we beat you guys 55 to nothing, and you guys took us off your um, schedule. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but yes, but, but much love to Virginia State. I, you know, my company, we do a lot of HBCU outreach with various companies and we've worked with Virginia State in the past and Clark Atlanta and Hampton and Norfolk State, FAMU, Jackson State, the list goes on. And, and I agree. It's, it's, such, it's like a homecoming experience. When I would go to these different schools, even though I attended West Virginia State and, um, and that's a smaller HBCU by comparison to even Virginia State. Uh, but you, you had the same experience as if I were going back to my college when I went to these different HBCUs, it could be fam, it could be wherever. Right. And it was always that degree of separation that was so close, uh, as it pertains to somebody knowing somebody that you knew. Right. I haven't gone to an HBCU where there wasn't, there, there wasn't some common link between the person that I was dealing with <laughs> and somebody that we both knew. Whether I think know. what does that a lot for HBCUs too is the different types of uh, varieties of people that we have. Number one, you have the Divine Nine. I'm not a member of the Divine Nine, but the Divine Nine, it's it's a it's it'll bridge some gaps. Um, you know, no matter where you go. <laughs> but also, we have a faculty that has really been educated all over. So we might have, you know, we have people on our faculty at Virginia State who got their degrees at Tuskegee. Or fam, you, our president, um, you know, has come from various places. So I think that's the beauty of HBCUs. Um, now, I'm not saying that we didn't have that at PWI, as you do. You definitely have it. But um, there, I, will, I always tell my students this. There are some benefits to PWIs. There are some drawbacks. There's some benefits to HBCUs. There's some drawbacks. It just depends on what you're after, what you're after. Um, I always share with them the good and the bad. And um, I think that variety is good. Like I tell students, if you did your undergraduate degree here, don't be afraid to pursue a degree at a PWI because there are some things that you can learn in those white spaces that don't come in books. There's some things that they are privy to as white people that they're not necessarily keeping from us. We just don't know about it. And so sometimes if you're just in the room, you can hear some things. <laughs> You can find right. out some things. It's not that anyone's keeping it from us. It's just that these white folk have grown up with that. Mm -hmm. It's a generational thing for them. What's generational for them is oftentimes not generational for us. You know, it, we haven't been generational in the sense that we're thinking about preparing a place for our grandkids. You know, most black folk, they're just thinking about how trying to make it for themselves, how to get their kids in a good position. We're not thinking that, 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 that next generation up, how what we, what we save we want it to be for grandchildren so that they're mm -hmm. not, so that they can actually be born in a better place financially. Um, school has been, school and education has been like the number one bet for black people. But now there's so many different things our kids can do other than college and college is so expensive. Now you have to think twice about it. You have mm -hmm. to think twice about it because when we came through, it cost me $7,000 a year to go to UVA. It's almost, it's, almost 30,000 now. My son went there and graduated in 21. Um, at Virginia State, we're the cheapest place you can go and get a four-year degree here in Virginia. And even our total package is about 26 now. And we're going to have mm. to do, uh, I think we're going to do a tuition increase 
a small one this year. So college is expensive, you know, whereas you could go get a, a degree for $28,000. Now, just about everywhere, it's going to cost you 100K. Right. Your degree. And that's something we have to kind of teach our kids. Everybody wants to go. I've seen kids get so disheartened when they say, oh, but I worked so hard. You know, I did everything. You know, I didn't get a full scholarship and I, you know, I, I can't afford to go. My parents can't afford to pay this. So they don't want to get the loans. And so it's smart when we talk to them about possibly doing community college. Um, mm-hmm. Start there, you know, and then transfer. We have a lot right. of dual degree programs now. Those have positives and negatives as well. But if you mm-hmm. are thinking about um, saving money, a lot of kids, a lot of our kids, even as teenagers, are thinking about that dollar. And I think they are smart too. I hate to see students trade off, you know, a social life and growing up for the more grown up thinking in terms of saving money. But, you know, that's kind of where we are. Mm-hmm. That's where we are in terms of higher education. Right. And I know you mentioned um, the Divine Nine, which I'm a member of. Mm-hmm. A shout out to Omega Sci Fi Fraternity Incorporated. <laughs> and <laughs> so, like, but, but you're right. It does allow you to, you know, create those life lifelong friendships and connections, not just in my fraternity, but in other fraternities as well, as right. well as sororities. You just have that common denominator. And and the same holds true with just members of the HBCU community. Mm-hmm. Even though I went to West Virginia State, if somebody went to Central State, right. there's still a connection because we're from that same community, the HBCU well, it, community. It's almost like HBCU itself is a group. You know, right, exactly. You know, and, and you know, people who went to UVA, we get excited when we run into other UVA folks. I'm telling you, right? There is nothing like a Wahoo running into another black or white Wahoo. We don't care, right? Like, when I lived in Korea for, lived, I lived in Korea, went over there with my husband. We were over there for two years. You best believe, before I left there, I found some Koreans who had gone to UVA, and they were so excited. <laughs> I was distracted, right? And, um, so you, you know, it, it you know. College, it, it kind of brings people together. Uh, in a Absolutely. Good way. Yeah. yeah. So, and, and you you also touched on something that I I've, I know people that's doing more of as far as people's children. They're encouraging them to, hey, listen, you can still have that four-year degree mm-hmm. without having the four-year debt. Yeah. So attend a, a community college for the first two years and then transition, whether you're transitioning to Rutgers if you're um, in New Jersey or Virginia State if you're in Virginia. So now I'm, I'm sure there's another option that people are exploring, especially after um, the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, are you are you finding uh, a lot more people enrolling to um, school online and and, 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 and that well, way they, they, that, that some of those expenses can be offset? So now I, I have uh, I have experience teaching online. I started teaching online in 2009. When distance education first became a thing, it was literally created mostly for military folk who were in the military trying to get a degree. Um, So I kind of like came up through that era where most of the students who I taught wanted to take courses online. And then the pandemic kind of thrust all K through 12, all colleges online. And it was a struggle because not everybody wants to take classes online and not every not everybody can do it. Not everybody wants to do it. You literally have to be sort of um, somewhat independent in terms of not just the technology piece, but you have to be independent in teaching yourself to go through a structured setting. Because when you're teaching online, you have two modes. You have synchronous and you have asynchronous. Now, I taught for years asynchronous, meaning it wasn't like we all had to be on there at once. 
I provided the instruction and you could do it whenever you wanted in the middle of the night. You just had to meet the deadlines. But so what happened after COVID is all of our K through 12ers were kind of thrown into this computer world. It worked well for some. It didn't work well for others. And we're still struggling because what happened, I think college made an easier transition. I was already providing an online like piece to my classes. So when COVID happened and they said, hey, everybody's got to go online, it was easy for me. Actually, I didn't have to do anything. Everything was already there because as someone who's been teaching in this mode, I always have my students turn assignments in that way. But we had tons of other faculty members who had never done it and who were struggling. Now, the after piece, um, I think there's been some beauty and we've seen that not everybody can do online. Um, and I don't think we should make that uh, a mandate. You know, we had to do that in COVID, but it, that was an emergency situation. But uh, I do think that we, uh, I've seen some online programs grow out of COVID. I think people found out, yeah, we don't have to do this. We can have an online component, but we still have to provide. There's a, there's a tremendous amount of students who still want face-to-face. -face. For example, I remember we have an amazing pro, uh, president at Virginia State University, Dr. McCullough Abdullah, and um, he's really in sync with the students. But I remember, you know, and especially for an HBCU, people come to an HBCU because their parents went or they're coming for the black experience. And the black experience is us being together. No, right. it's not. Let's <laughs> right. be online. Like, how are right. pews going to step online, right? <laughs> like, how is right. that going to happen? Right. Um, so right after COVID, I just remember our administration was really gung-ho on pushing people back. Like, we got to get back because these kids want to get back to the social. They need, they want to see each other. You know, they want to have their parties. They want to have their socials. But then you had the older folk who were, like, scared to death of COVID. Um, right. You know, we've seen people die. And, like, we've had people on our faculty die. So it was really, really tough. But uh, we made it back in. I took an extra semester before I went back. Mm -hmm. um, because I just wasn't prepared. You know, kids want to party, kids want to have fun. But what I was thinking about, man, these kids are coming back on buses and trains and planes and nobody's wearing masks and they're going to be bringing COVID with them. <laughs> so right. this is what we were thinking. Uh, but, but you know, thank God we made it through as all mm -hmm. universities have because you do have to get back to business. But mm -hmm. um, we have a number, excuse me, of students who, really like that that hands-on that face-to-face -face seeing you I, I actually i'm grading final projects right now and i had a student tell me that just that thing in her reflective essay she said i found out this semester that i need to be in class that online is not for me i need to be there see the teacher just that 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 interaction so um, we have to provide that dual that dual modality you know but then you have students who are so independent they want online because they mm. want to work. They want to be able to do all this other stuff. And so I think it's great that we do have these two modes. Um, I don't think one is better than the other. I just think they are both great. But I think a student has to know. I've seen students come in an online class and totally fail because they mm. can't keep up with that modality. Um, but I've seen students do really well, too. Right. Really well. Now, now, one of the things you had mentioned, you said that Virginia State, they offer um, the lowest four-year education in the state of Virginia. In terms of and, cost. In terms of cost, right. Mm -hmm. And I think my um, alma mater is probably on par with that mm -hmm. as far as cost. 
And I think what I've noticed at my alma mater, and I'm sure the same is held true at, at other HBCUs, a lot of our non-melanated counterparts are seeing the advantages of saying, you know what, why am I spending all this money to go to University of Richmond or go to, um, um, you know, William and Mary? I could go to Virginia State and get a four-year degree a lot cheaper. Are you yeah. seeing an uptick in um, non-melanated students at your school? Yes, uh, every year. And I can't really say it's just because of the tuition because UVA is affordable. Uh, it's mm -hmm. affordable. Uh, it's, it's right a little bit above us. Um, but UVA is just really competitive. They're just like ridiculous. I mean, UVA has turned down valedictorians every year. I mean, there's kids who are valedictorian and salutatorian and they can't believe they didn't get in. Um, and it's just because UVA looks for something different. They want people who make more than 4.0s. Um, mm -hmm. UVA is one of those schools that's kind of a total package. Um, what you, you hear the term academical village there. Um, that was one of the things I love. Do we see more non-black people at VSU? Yes, we do. And I think it's, um, I, I would say we can attribute that to some of the initiatives that have happened at VSU. For example, we're in a teacher shortage right now. We have um, an amazing education program, teacher edu education program, and we have so for, for decades. But some of the initiatives that have been set in place, like you can come to VSU and get your degree literally for free if you major in education and give two years back in a high needs um area. Uh, we have a high needs area right near us, which is Petersburg. Um, it's hurting. So students will come back and get a, a, an undergraduate degree. Uh, we kind of offer a similar deal if you come and get your master's. But in addition to that, since COVID, um, our governor, I don't, I can't remember if it was in the works before COVID happened, but it's definitely a sure thing after COVID. We have this program here in Virginia called the VCAN program. And that's where any student who lives within a 40 mile or I don't know if it's 40 or 50 something mile radius of Virginia State and your family income falls within a certain gap, you can come here for free. Your tuition is free. So we offer that program to surrounding counties. Norfolk State offers it. And what I have seen is an uptick in non-black people who fit that category. <laughs> they are coming to get this free education. Um, right after COVID, I had a mother and son who are not black in one of my classes. And the mom straight said, I'm coming here to get this free degree, you know? And so you see a lot of that. I mean, college is expensive and people want affordability and, and, you know, we, we are providing affordability, mm -hmm. um, you know, we're, we're probably still in some folk from community college. <laughs> right. Like, if I can go get my four-year degree free, you know, if you meet the income, uh, you know, all the guidelines, you can do it. And why not? Um, you know, why not try it? Even if you don't know if you can do it, try it. I, I, I always tell kids, I think everybody should try college because bigger than the academics, you know, because you've been, there's an experience that you get in college. It's sort of like a growing up or coming into your own. Um, one of my older sons, because uh, we kind of make all our kids go, he went and he didn't stay. But I'm like, it, it, it's an experience that I wish every kid could have, you know, if you can do it, if you can do mm -hmm. it, because money is a barrier. Um, right. And then sometimes money isn't a barrier. Sometimes the right family, parents, if you have no help, that can be a barrier. Uh, but, you know, everybody who's been to college knows that 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 is nothing like that experience of living on there, living in a dorm, you know, meeting people uh, at UVA. I met people from different religions and nationalities that I, I would never have met in Southampton County, Virginia.
Like, Sion County is still not diverse. <laughs> 40 years <laughs> later. It's still the same. Everybody's Christian. Black church, white church. There, I mean, there's no Muslim temples in Southampton County. Um, you're just not going to get that. You're rarely going to get any atheists in Southampton County. Um, right. So I, I tell students, college, it's, it's such a learning experience in terms of, I always say, meet people here. Meet people who are different than you. Mm-hmm. You know, get exposed to some different opinions, some different worldviews. Um, everybody is not what they seem. You know, because mm-hmm. we, we've all been taught a thing when it comes to people. We've all been taught a thing. And we know that as black people, we've been taught how to interact with white folk. When we get Absolutely. our license, when we go here, whatever. Um, and so I, I spoke at a class at William and Mary about a couple of weeks ago. And I told the students that I was happy to see the class had some brown in it. Um, UVA, I mean, William and Mary was one of my choice schools that I applied to. Um, but I was happy to see the, the black students in there and I told all of them, there's a lot you're going to have to unlearn. Things that we've been taught by our parents in <laughs> society. The older you get, you will learn what things you have to unlearn. Um, because everything is not always what it seems, you know. In terms of racism, I treat people kindly until they give me a reason not to. And that's just not <laughs> racism. That's, that's everything. That's right? everything. That's everything. Um, mm-hmm. I've heard students say things. I remember when I first came back to Virginia State, I heard a young lady say, you know, why are they here? This is our school. <laughs> we came here to get a black experience. And I'm like, you know, it's a good thing that they're here. I mean, you think about it. That's probably what white kids said at UVA. Back in mm-hmm. the day, why are y'all here? This is our school. You know, education is, is free. And not only is education in the books, in the majors, in the papers, but education is in people. You know, and if you're only going to see your people all the time, now I get students who come to Virginia State and they'll come from say uh, some of the places in, in Brooklyn or, or in New York and they'll say, Miss Faison, um, I could go a whole month and not see any 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 white folks <laughs> where I'm from, you know? And so that's unbelievable to me because I have not spent a lot of time in New York. I've been through there to visit, but I don't know anything about, you know, living in Brooklyn or living in the Bronx. And so I love hearing the experiences that students, they teach me. Mm-hmm. The experiences that they bring to me because I can't be everywhere at one time, but people are an experience and people are an education. And so I think um, I love to see the diversity at uh, at Virginia State. Yeah, I, I had one of those similar experiences growing up in West Virginia. It was it was probably surprisingly more diverse than people would think, especially when I moved to the New York metropolitan area. I've been here for you know, going on 30 years. And when you tell people that you're from West Virginia, the first thing they say is, oh, my cousin lives in um, Richmond or Virginia Beach. I'm like, that's a whole nother state. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I think I'm West like, Virginia is Virginia. Right, I think it's, I'm like, it used to be, but it's not anymore. So, right. but when I, went to, when I went to Cleveland to spend some time with some relatives, I mean, Dr. Faison, it was, that, it was that. I was in Cleveland looking for white people. <laughs> like I didn't see anybody. Yeah, I didn't see anybody that wasn't black for weeks, and and it, and it was like a it, it was a, a shocking experience for me because growing up in West Virginia, you've seen as many black people as you've seen white people, probably right. more white people than black people, and right. that became your normal. But like you said, people whether they're from because I'm familiar with all the areas in New York, so whether they're mm-hmm. from East New York or whether they're from you know South Bronx, they mm-hmm. may not see a lot of non melanated people. Mm-hmm. Because very similar, and I have a sociology degree, so it, it kind of, you know, unpacks how people right are shaped. 
it, it, it's how they're shaped based on their, you know, social exposure. So right. the same thing that holds true in Southampton County, it holds true in the projects in East New York. Uh, mm -hmm. Nobody, there's not a whole lot of traffic coming in and out of those projects. So there's not a whole lot of traffic coming in and out of Southampton County. There's not a whole lot of in and out traffic coming from certain places in West Virginia. Right. When people talk to me about West Virginia in certain places. I'm like, West Virginia is not like here where you can literally just say, oh, you know, I found a cool place on the map. Let's go there. Yeah. Now, West Virginia yeah. is like, look, we're going to stay in these little pockets. Yep. <laughs> and, and we're not going to venture out. <laughs> We, you know, we're going to stay here. So, no, one of the things you had mentioned is, you know, like the, the experience and how, why it's, it, it's key that people who don't look like us show up on our campus, just like people who look like us show up on other PWI campuses. And that's a very great point that you made yeah. because I'm sure they had that same experience, even when they were integrating um, schools, the little girl, you see the, the famous picture of the little girl walking into the school. Ruby Bridges. You know, so I've got a Ruby, Ruby Bridges. Bridges poem. Yeah. Right. So we, we, we have to be mindful of that. And that's why, you know, at, at my school, believe it or not, if you went to West Virginia State at 10 o'clock in the morning, you would think you probably was at William and Murray. Because mm -hmm. I can honestly say that they've turned my school almost into a commuter school. There's mm -hmm. more parking lots than there are dormitories. Oh, and, and as a result of which, I mean, West Virginia is a predominantly white state. Mm -hmm. And many of these white kids and no fault to them. They say, listen, why am I going to go to University of Charleston where it's way more expensive? Mm -hmm. Marshall's 40 minutes away. And then some of the other schools are expensive or far, or, or you know, far away. Why don't I just go to West Virginia State? I'll right. take all morning classes because more times than not, people like me and my friends, we were taking afternoon and evening classes. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> you know, and so if you still, but if you come to my school during homecoming, you'd be like, Okay, he's telling me a lie because nothing's changed. This looks like Virginia State. Yeah. And I say, Dr. Faison, you got to come on Monday at like 10 o'clock. <laughs> and then, and then, well, okay, they got me at William and Mary again. But I think West Virginia State is special because I, I've never been out there, but mm -hmm. I have actually, we've gotten some West Virginia State students. Okay. And I had some students, some young ladies who came from West Virginia State. And uh, she was like, it's an HBCU, but it's kind of, it is, but it isn't. Right. And right. uh, she was explaining to me how the dynamics of basketball or for the girls' basketball was changing out there. She's mm -hmm. like, hey, these white girls are coming and taking up our spots. <laughs> so, so I'm like, wow, that's interesting. But, but I think West Virginia State just has some different dynamics in terms of, of, of race, the, you know, the right. population. Oh, absolutely. And, 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 you know, like you'll see that in certain sports, like maybe with the volleyball team, mm -hmm. you know, it may only be like two sisters on the team, but then when the, all of the traditional sports, whether you're talking basketball, men's basketball and football, again, no changes. Yeah. Baseball, even when I was in school, I graduated in 94, like, and our basketball and our baseball team was the bomb, but we only had one brother on there. Wow. But I, I yeah, the population and your geographical the population absolutely has a lot to do with that. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But I but I think what, what it allowed us to do is it, it kind of prepared us for what life because one of the things that I will say to your point is there's good and bad in attending an HBCU. So it definitely it, it provides that nourishment to those who are undernourished as it relates to hey, yeah. you know. This is who you are. You're special. You're this, right. you're that. Right. But at some point when you leave that bubble, yep. then you have to be prepared for life outside of Virginia yeah. State, yeah. Life, life, life outside of FAMU. And I think at my school, yeah. there's that duality mm -hmm. because 
you're going to be always reminded of the fact that in many, in, in many instances, you're going to be the minority. Mm-hmm. But I think what allows you to still have that HBCU experience is campus life. The campus life, for right. the most part, hasn't changed because to your point, think about it. If the state is predominantly white and people want that HBCU experience, who's going to just all of a sudden say, hey, I'm from Brooklyn and I want to go to West Virginia State. They're, right. they're going to want to go there for the HBCU experience and mm-hmm. chances are they're going to look like you and me. So mm-hmm. most of your out-of-state students are going to be black. And, 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 and and that's the thing. And that's really the lifeline that it kind of ties us to our HBCU roots. And, you know, and, and that's something that, you know, that, that I'm proud of to still have that HBCU status, you know, cause there's other schools in, in West Virginia, such as Bluefield state. Mm -hmm. Um, there was a school that was, was an HBCU and then it kind of lost that status. And now it's kind of starting to make that, 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 that resurgence. And, and strangely enough, I mean, I, I have, I don't have a whole lot of legs at that school other than like third party information that I'm getting, mm-hmm. but I heard like their president who's Caucasian, they say, he's like, listen, you, you know, I'm trying to do everything I can to, to, to reassert ourselves as an HBCU and he right. doesn't look like us, right. but I think he understands and realizes the significance mm-hmm. of what, what it would be for them to be an HBCU. Cause if not, you're just another school in the state. And that's happening in a, in a few places uh, where we're getting white coaches, white presidents at some of these HBCUs. And that's been a topic of discussion on whether or not that should even be. But um, I think it's the mission, the mission of an HBCU, the mission and the goals of an HBCU. They, sh- they should never change. It doesn't matter who's running it. Um, we've had this, you know, I know definitely myself and faculty members at my institution, We've had conversations about how how black we think this thing needs to be. How white should it be? Um, and I don't know. I mean, it's like I don't. I don't. I mean, I think an HBCU should always be and feel like an HBCU. I mean, no doubt we should provide. Um, our mission should be providing the to- a top notch educational experience. Um, mm-hmm. It just so happens that you know we are focused on academics, the socials, uh, even the athletics. Mm-hmm. But the big picture at, at HBCUs is always the funding. Um, we would love to be able to do lots of things, but the funding. Um, I don't think people realize how different the funding looks at an mm-hmm. HBCU as opposed to a white state school or a white uh, private school. Mm-hmm. Um, the funding is different. And so that's usually what kind of limits us. I will say this, HBCUs do a lot with a little, which is, it. look, it's it's nothing new. Black folk have been doing that for 400 years. Absolutely. And that's lemons, we're going to make lemonade. Lemonade. Uh, peach peelings, we're going to make a peach collar. Uh, Absolutely. Give us the scraps, we're going to make some collard greens with some ham hot. I mean, but that's what we do. And right. so we take the funding that we get mm-hmm. and people look at us and don't know we're operating on, on, on so little funds. Right. Now, speaking yeah. of funds, and one of the things that someone just brought to my attention, mm-hmm. um, a couple of weeks back, one of my fraternity brothers who is in local politics in West Virginia, and he's an attorney by trade, and he mentioned that West Virginia, as well as other schools, I mean, as, as well as other states, mm-hmm. they've been accused of not 
providing those funds that they were, I believe you would know better than me. I just want to have you kind of unpack it and, and correct, you know, me on areas that I may be getting, you know, incorrect, but it seems as though the federal government was giving money to some of these schools or they were giving money to the state States. to, to, to get, you know, for, for all of those land grant institutions. And I believe that right. the States were supposed and to be matching those are, funds. We are a land grant institution. Right. And so uh, basically, you know, some research was done to look into it and they found that there were states who had neglected to give certain black land grant institutions their due. Mm -hmm. uh, I can speak typically about our state. Uh, like our, our state has been, uh, you know, that they've been told that you, you, you owed us like 223, I think it was what millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. And so uh, when you do the math, it's all the research was based on, of course, school size and all of that. Um, but I mean, I don't think that should be shocking at all to find that a state has neglected a black institution. We have neglected black people, period. Um, in housing, in medical care. I mean, everywhere you turn, black people have been neglected. So surely HBCUs now, whether or not we can get that money, <laughs> I don't know. Right. Right. Um, I, you know, our president was just we this came up in one of our, 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 our faculty meetings and we were talking about that. And um all things are political. Mm -hmm. All things are political. Um, the thing about slavery is it's such a hard thing to talk about because I, I was teaching it. I teach the essay similar to the on white privilege, but racism is always so hard for white folks to talk about because they think you point blame at them. You know, mm -hmm. they're like, well, I wasn't there. Um, but you know, it's systemic. And so when you point out things like this, the fact that HBCUs were, you know, deny what was due to them. It's not like we're pointing to you, but but the, but the current leadership is the one that has to deal with it. Right. You know, they're the ones that have to deal with it. I don't know that we're going to see that money, but I do know that our president works really hard to work with um, government officials here, whether they are Democrat or Republican, to get mm -hmm. what's due for Virginia State. And I think um, just in the seven years that I've been in here, I've seen a lot of positives in terms of what we what we're getting. Um, and right. the support that we're getting. And in that support, um, I, I think it's been consistent, whether it's been a Democratic or a Republican or independent in office. But I think that speaks to the leadership that you have, um, you know, at your institution and whether mm -hmm. or not that person does a really good job of navigating politics. Um, right. Because there's money that's there, but you also have to establish a relationship. Uh, land grant institutions usually... Um, Agriculture, a lot of times, is a big major there. Like agriculture is one of our biggest majors, and when it comes to that agriculture department, um, you could li literally walk into our, some of our agricultural programs and not even realize you're an HBCU because you know there's just that that field is so filled with people who are um, not everybody's black, and I think that's right. great. Um, and they seem to work really well together. We have. Um, uh, cannabis initiative going on at Virginia State. We have our own farms, like all, several hundred acres where we're growing a lot of things. And so people are really interested in Virginia State for a lot of different reasons now. Mm -hmm. um, our business program is is great. Um, our education school is great. So we have certain things that, that cause us to stand out. Um, we have a new hospitality program. It's not that new, but it's one of our totally online programs. And so people come to schools for different reasons, but I think um, I think it was great to point out that these schools have been neglected, that you owe us. But right. I mean, they, they owe us anyway. 
Um, we've been having this reparations uh, talk and feud and discussion forever. Whether or not we will ever see them, I don't know. I have my own notions of what I think reparations. Some people, when they think reparations, they just think, oh, give us money. You know, give every descendant money. But right. I think now, you know, if I had to decide, you know, I would be leaning toward reparations um, in, in different ways. Like I think um, reparations for black people, in my opinion, would look like land ownership, would look like uh, tax breaks, would look like free medical, um, would look like free school. So in terms of reparations, that's what I see. That's what I, I think would benefit us. Um, benefits, you know, give us our due because that I just don't see it feasible that they would pay like the descendants of black folk all this money. That's kind of like, and that's the problem when you start talking reparations. That's the problem that most white people have. All they can think about is their tax dollars going to right. all these black people. That's all they can think about. Um, Absolutely. But I think reparations, the conversation needs to be around and what types of programs and breaks can we give African-Americans um, whose ancestors were enslaved in this country because we, we we were crippled. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we didn't get a lot of the breaks that Native Americans finally got. Um, mm -hmm. Native Americans were given the opportunity to have their own schools, their own tribal land. We were given none of that. Um, Casinos. Even our black schools during segregation, when they when they integrated schools, we didn't even do that properly. You know, they right. took all the black kids and threw them in white schools. Many of the black folk lost their jobs um, mm -hmm. and it was saved by places like Virginia State University who brought right. them on as faculty. But uh, so there, there are a lot of things in this country that have been done backwards. And mm -hmm. one of the things that I always say is we need a hard reset uh, before we get this thing right or rolling. I think a lot of things are going to have to go back to ground zero and start up. And I've been saying in a, in a bigger way. Even our Constitution, even our Declaration of Independence, mm -hmm. um, when you have things that were founded in hate and racism and discrimination, I mean, how do you even move forward with that? As you see, our current generation is not, they are impatient. They are not about waiting. <laughs> they are not about marching. <laughs> They're not about, some of these people in the current generation are about, we want it and we want it now. Now. Um, we want it now. And so I think we will probably see, you know, in coming years where a lot of these things are going to be, I mean, even the way we do politics in Washington is, is spinning out of control. Um, the terms that people can have when they run for office and just stay in an office. Um, mm -hmm. you think about the Supreme Court and how those people can be in the Supreme Court for life. Um, there's a lot of things about this country and the way we do business here. We need to relook it. But the scary part about it all is it's, the people who are going to decide what this reset is going to look like. I mean, do we even trust them? Like, do yeah, they know right. enough? Are they fair enough to make a fair decision? And I think, I think that's the scary part about everything in America. Mm -hmm. um, because when you have this history that we have where no one really trusts anybody, um, there's black people walking around who don't trust white people, period. We mm -hmm. work with them, work with them. Some of us are even married to them and still don't trust them. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm married to you, but not your family. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I mean, it's, and it's, you don't have to go very far. There's white people who don't trust black folks. I mean, come mm -hmm. on. It's evidence in that they won't hire us. If they right. see a name that looks black, they won't hire it. Mm -hmm. um, that, that's just the way our world is. And you never know what end of the spectrum you're on when you're dealing with folk. And so I think as long as we have this huge gap, this distrust, 
it's going to be hard to get anything done in, in our country um, that would, I would say, would be 100% fairly done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know what? I'll say this. The students at Virginia State University, they are just, I mean, honored and blessed to have someone like you that's pouring into them and just, you know, pouring so much wisdom into their cup run us over. And I'm just like, I, I'm just, just happy that you spent some time with us. And, you know, one of our team members and a really good friend of mine, you may or may not know him. He's a, uh, I should say, famed alum of, of Virginia State, Lorenzo Ice-T Thomas. You know, he's, He's been in radio and television. Okay, I don't know him. Right, yeah. So he's somebody, in Virginia State, so. Right. So I, I, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with the song. Remember that record when we were out and kicking it? Remember that record, uh, Let Me Clear My Throat by DJ Cool? Yes. Okay, so you know when he's giving out all of the shout outs at the end of uh, the, the yeah. song and he's, he's Don Mac, Charlie Mac, and then he ends the song and Lorenzo Ice T. Okay, okay. Yeah. That's, that's a. Up. Yeah, that's, a, that's that's my friend, and he's also alum of, of Virginia State Virginia University. State. So, okay, okay. Yeah, so, you know, so we he, have a new hip hop program going on, and right. um, I actually found out about your show through um, Most Deaf. Oh, um, get out of here! I started All right. talking about your show one day, and I was like, "Oh, you got to check that out." Yeah, yeah. Now, nah, l- listen. I mean, we what we want to do is we want to continue to pour into our young people because I think the key to your point, you we. You know, we can't necessarily hold people accountable for what they don't know. And, you know, there's things that we probably take for granted, just like, you know, when people who don't live in some of these under-resourced communities, they take things for granted. So it's like, what I want to do is I want to be able to do my part and say, listen, how can I educate people through conversations? Mm -hmm. How can I take the power of media and empower others? Having, you know, know, uh, having been a proud graduate of West Virginia State (laughs) University, and there's so many different stories that, I, about West Virginia State, I didn't know until the power of media came about. So I'm sure you're familiar with the movie Hidden Figures. Yes. So that story about Katherine Johnson, I knew nothing about it mm-hmm. until the movie came out. It's sad yeah. because I grew up down the street from the school mm-hmm. and she's um, she was a member of Alpha, uh, Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated. And one of her big sisters who pledged her, who initiated uh-huh. her into new chapter at West Virginia State University, actually went to my church. Wow. So I had all of these small different, world. I had these small world opportunities. And then check this out. It gets, Dr. Faison, it gets even deeper. Then come to find out, um, Catherine Johnson's older sister was my father's teacher. Because Catherine Johnson is from West Virginia, having attended right. West Virginia State University. And now... What ended up happening as a result of that story being told and it being, you know, in receipt of all of these praise and awards and, mm-hmm. and, 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 and President Obama, you know, giving her the freedom, you know, the, 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 uh, the Medal of Freedom Lord, and yeah. the freedom and all of, all of those good things. So what we were able to do before she passed on, we were able to erect a statue of her and her honor on my campus. So she nice. was able to see that. I think she was like a hundred years old and I think mm-hmm. she, passed away sometime after that but you know shortly after i should say but i mean so for me i fully understand the power of media the power of Mm -hmm. getting people to see things beyond what they know to be their reality kids don't listen to what you tell them they listen to what you show them so if i can give if i can show you an example if i can show you these conversations 
then you'll be you, you'll be a more of a uh, you'll be more right. likely to to kind of receive that information rather than me say hey go read it especially right. if their exposure to retaining information in that capacity has been something that they haven't necessarily wrapped their hands around yeah. but yeah. what they all can wrap their hand around courtesy of social media and television and YouTube is mm -hmm. content content right. as as we say in our business content is king Look. so. Mass communications is a huge major at VSU, and I'm always happy to see students who are starting their own podcasts, doing their own shows. I mean, creating their own brands. We have it all on campus, all everywhere. And so it's great to see these students doing that. One of the ways that I introduce my stu myself to students every single semester, and I do it sometimes four times back to back because I teach classes back to back, is I tell them my story. Because when they look at you as a professor, you know, they see someone who they think, oh, doesn't understand me, has made it, da, da, da. But when right. I share my story, it breaks, you know, it just puts us on level playing, you know? Right. My mom Absolutely. was a teenage friend. You know, my mom had me as a teenager. Some of your moms did. And it, it mm -hmm. always just kind of, um, it's a great thing to, to, to be able to do that with them because it just makes, it, they kind of like let off some air. Like, okay, mm -hmm. this person is really going to understand me. Um, and one of the first assignments that I give them as an English instructor is tell me about yourself you know, mm. because you can't do it like 25 students in a classroom in an hour. So your first writing exercise is to tell me about you, why mm. you're here, what is it you hope to gain? And so, and then at the end, we're at the end of a semester, they have to give me a reflective essay where they mm. tell me how in a semester life has changed for them, what they've learned, whether in this class or just being on the campus period. And I'm always amazed by what I see and I'm always, you know, glad that I see they can recognize that they've learned some things um, and how like they've, they've been exposed to something that's different from home. Um, right. And that's so important. You know, all we know is what we know. All we know is what we've been exposed to. It's like you put a kid in front of a TV, whatever you're showing them all day, that's what they're going to take in. Absolutely. You know, you're right. You're right. So as we begin to close out, I just wanted to give you the opportunity to leave our listeners and viewers with some takeaways on um, some things that will help them prepare for takeoff. We're all about amplifying young folk. We're all about mm -hmm. trying to pour into these, you know, these rising mm -hmm. entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. And I think someone like you has uh, just, you know, so, so much wisdom to bestow. So I wanted to just give you the opportunity to kind of, you know, give some takeaways. Well, one, I, I think that, you know, having having confidence in yourself, um, many, many people are struggling with just confidence. Can I do it? Um, you know, am I worthy of doing it? I've never had a confidence problem. Um, I've always believed that I could do and achieve. And I've always been a self-starter. I've never needed someone else to validate me. Um, and if you can cross that hurdle where, yes, just go out and do it. You want to start a podcast? Learn how to do it. I started publishing my own books. I'm my own publishing company. Um, I just got a first book deal with an academic press this year. Like we're talking about 24 or five years later. Um, I didn't wait for someone to endorse me. But this one book deal that I just got with the University of Alaska Press, it would not, it would not have happened if I hadn't taken the initiative to do my, all my own publishing. Because there would be no literal face and poet author without with the 14 books. And mm -hmm. I not just just done it. And I did that by surrounding myself with surround yourself with people who are doing the thing you want to do. OK, that that's most important. People are important. Who you, you environment is important. You know, we say this to our kids a lot. 
But um, even in a state where I had to be home, I, I virtually surrounded myself with authors, people who were self-publishing, getting book deals with Random House, uh, and, and they would they would share with me, do this, this is great, you know. And so when you start to network with folks, if you can just get in the room, it'll fall on you. You don't have to ask questions. There are people out there waiting to pick you dry. There are people out there who want to who want to charge you for every piece of information you give them. I've never been that person. Um, I believe, you know, some information should just be free. I'm not going to go publish my stuff and then charge you <laughs> to tell you how to self-publish. But we have a lot of that going on, even in our own community. So one, believe in yourself. Two, you have to educate yourself, uh, whether you can get into a college or not. Um, college can happen. I mean, we, we all have smartphones and internet now. Everything you want to know how to do, you can find it on your smartphone or on your computer. Um, Michael Jackson was one of the probably the biggest geniuses we ever had who was never educated formally. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, he's an example of someone who every day self-taught. Um, I tell students to read, read, read something every day. You should be learning something every day. Um, doesn't have to be research, doesn't have to be, you know, but read something of substance. And if you're really trying to grow in a field, like I would read everything about publishing. I would read people's stories on how they published, you know, because right. I want to find out what printer they use, what marketer they use. And so you just, if you see someone who's doing what you want to do, you can shadow that person without them even know you're shadowing them. Um, I, we have followed people like Toni Morrison and Alice Walker for years. Um, one of the things that changed my life, and I'll end, I guess, my story with this. One of the things that changed my life, I went to Virginia Tech for graduate school. I was always interested in poetry. Langston Hughes, Maya Angelou was like one of my favorites. I end up at Virginia Tech getting my master's there. I find out that Nikki Giovanni is on the faculty. Okay. I can't get into one of her classes because they're always packed to the mat. I'm a grad student. And so it turns out one of my professors, who's actually her partner now, one of my professors back in the 90s, uh, I was taking an African-American lit class with, and she wasn't black. I mm -hmm. said, look, can you get me a meeting? with Nikki Giovanni. Now, I had seen Nikki come to UVA a couple times to do readings, but you know, you just get in the press and sign your book, blah, 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 blah. But I said, can you get me a meeting with Nikki Giovanni? So she was like, yeah, I see what I can do. So she gets me this meeting and, and uh, I go and I'm like, oh gosh, this is going to be interesting. But I go in there and so Nikki's office looks a lot like mine right now. <laughs> and um, she's pouring like like coffee out of a big thermos and she gives me, we, we're drinking coffee. But um, she was like, we're just talking. And so I said, you know, how did you get started with publishing, with poetry? And she literally, what she told me then uh, is that she, you know, was coming of age in the civil rights movement. And what she started doing was she was always into the movement and what was going on with the cause. What she started doing was going around everywhere Dr. King and all those people were speaking, whether it was in Tennessee, she because she was she had come up through, I believe, Knoxville. Um, Wherever they were going, she was going. And she came to be known as a poet who could read a, a poem, a radical poem. And so wherever they started going on the program, they started putting her on the program to read poems. But then she self-published her own book. And when she, I'm telling you, she's sitting in her office telling me in 1990, this was like 96, that she self-published her own book and sold copies of it out of the, out of the trunk of her book, books wagon. Wow. That thing hit me. I'm telling you. And I'm like, oh, that's it. And then she said to me, because you know, 
Well, she's like, now I'm a big time, you know, she's got all these publishing deals or whatever, but she's like, you know, people think you make a lot of money. And she was saying to me, I can't remember which book had come out that year, but she was like this book that, you know, I've sold over a million copies. What people don't know is we get like maybe 20 cents per copy. Mm. And then when she said that, I'm like, dang, 20 cents per copy. I'm doing the math. And I'm like, right. all of these people are getting a piece of your, your, your pie. But, right. I mean, but you're paying for it, justly, justly mm-hmm. so, because you're paying for exposure. But but just that one meeting with her, and it was probably mm-hmm. all of 20, 25 minutes with her sharing that, it gave me what I needed to, to and later in 99, start my own thing, start publishing my own books. And I just learned how to do it. I studied up, um, talked to people who had done it, found out, you know, the pros and cons of doing it. Um, and I don't know if people remember the, uh, the author Zane, who was writing books like addicted. She was writing back then. There was so many people. I was networking with a lot of different people, but these, it, it's just so helpful to be in the space. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, folks in the black churches say, get to the spot where the glory is coming out. Um, that, that, <laughs> that, but <laughs> if anything you want to do, it's not going to happen if you don't know what to do. Right. Um, and a lot of times we think money is a barrier. Money wasn't a barrier. Now, I did have to pay to self-publish. You can self-publish now for free. That's how mm-hmm. far we've come because of the way digital, you know, technology. You And so now all of my books um, that I self-publish, um, they are offered on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. I've done them all. I've made all my own money. And I tell people I, I, I could sell more books than I sell. Um, mm-hmm. I just have been raising a family. I'm a military spouse. And so, but when I go out to do speaking engagements and I sell books, I can sell books. I mean, I mean, even at a small black church, I can mm-hmm. sell three to five hundred dollars worth of books in an hour. Wow. And when you think about that, how if you did like larger platforms, I mean, you could really make money. That's not my end game. Um, I've got a real job <laughs> that I do, but it, it's great to know that you can take uh, you know, the fruit of your hands, something that you created. Uh we have always, as a people, been talented, creative, and smart. Mm-hmm. We've always made ways out of no ways. And we're going to continue. So when I see kids, sometimes I joke about the kids. They'll say, oh, Miss Mason, I got my own lash line or my own hairline. And I'm like, really? As a freshman, you have your own lash line? These kids have their own eyelash line. I, I kid you not. And so I'm thinking, wow, as a freshman, they are doing this. It's kind of amazing. Um, because it's like they're learning their own uh, marketing. They're coming. I mean, as my grandma used to say, nothing beats a fail but a trial. At least mm. they're trying. At least they're trying. Um, and, you know, there will be those of us who will get it right. Uh, my aunt made a quarter of a million dollars selling fake hair in the 80s. I love to tell my students that story. And in, 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 uh, in Bloomfield, Connecticut, she had just come out of a divorce. And she held on to one or two little stores that she and her husband owned. And um, that first year, she made a quarter of a million dollars selling weave. Wow. Yeah, the, the hair, hair business, do, that's big, that's big money. That's, that's in the 80s. Even, look, weave wasn't even popular in the country then. Right. Oh, yeah. Like, I know some people in Atlanta that's making a killing millions yeah. of dollars in Atlanta selling weaves. Yes. Yeah. yeah, it's crazy. I mean, like you said, it's it's so many different things that, People don't realize they can do, and to to your to your exact point, to your grandmother's point, you know, it's it's just a matter of trying, yeah. you know. And and I and I tell people, don't even say try, say what yeah. you're doing. What are you doing? doing it. And I you're love doing when it. People say, you know, 
poets struggle with this, with saying, I'm a poet. Poets, poets are not people who make money. You know, if you're unless you're like Rita or Nikki or Maya, no, those are the poets that you see up there. But that's something that writers struggle with, calling themselves a poet, calling themselves a novelist. You don't mm-hmm. have to have that first book published to call yourself that thing. Um, right. Just go ahead and speak it. Speak it and start doing it. Um, so right. I say to anyone out there who has a dream, one, there's more than one way to do a thing. Um, mm-hmm. Study it. Find out how. Um, not everything costs a lot of money. And I have found that if you if you put yourself in the right positions, people will come. Let's talk mm-hmm. about 20 years later. I went to a conference at James Madison University in 2019. Uh, the Furious Flower, the JMU Furious Flower Poetry Center. First center uh, dedicated to uh, black poets. The first academic center dedicated to black poets founded by Joanne Gavin, who is a friend of mine. I go there and I find out about this group. Now, the year that I went, they were honoring Nikki Giovanni, who's a favorite of mine, right? Hadn't seen her since I had coffee with her in her office. So I'm, <laughs> I'm at this conference and I'm there. The next thing I know, I'm singing Negro spirituals for Nikki Giovanni because I get you know, so. Then I found out about this group called Wintergreen, the Wintergreen Women Writers. It was a group started for Nikki Giovanni when she took mm. the professorship at Virginia at Virginia Tech. I knew nothing about these women. Amazing women in this group. They've written uh, probably some of the most uh, well-read scholarship out there on Black writers. We leave that conference, and I think it was two years later. I don't even know if it's been a year. I got invited into the group. So when I tell the story about how Nikki Giovanni inspired me, but now I'm Nikki Giovanni's literary sister, um, that's that's the full circle amazing moment for me. Absolutely. Uh, We had our retreat this year. It wasn't virtual, it was in person, where we go up to the mountains in Wintergreen. And we're all in the house. And so they invited a lot of younger women in. And we're in the house, and we're in the house cooking. Nikki Giovanni's cooking lamb lamb chops. I'm cooking macaroni and cheese. And I'm like, did I really meet her in like 1996 and sit in her office? And now I'm here. Now I'm here. And so uh, whatever dream you have, I did not fathom the route that I took. If you ask me, that little girl who was everything in high school, would I be here right now? I would not be able to tell you yes. Because I I did not fathom being where I am right now. But I'm Mm -hmm. so glad that that I'm here. Um, and I'm glad the road that I took is the road that I took um, mm-hmm. because it's been it's been really good. It's been really good. I agree, and I mean I I say the same. You know, your our stories are similar because you know growing up in a small town and just having aspirations of um, you know launching an entertainment career didn't necessarily know how to go about doing that, and then it took me moving to be exposed to people who were doing what it is I wanted to do, and. You know, 20 some years later, I'm still doing it. And yeah. I also want to, you know, just be grateful to have people in my network like um, the uh, Bruce George, the uh, mm-hmm. co-founder of Deaf yeah. Poetry Jam, who's another common denominator between you and myself. Mm-hmm. And he's a good friend of mine. We go back, you know, 20 years. He also has the Geniuses Common Movement and mm-hmm. super proud of all of the great things he's doing. He speaks extremely highly of you. And I just wanted to once again thank you for taking some time to spend with us. And also, I want to give you the opportunity to let people know where they can find you, where they can find your book, how they can find you on social media. Great. I'm Latorial Facing. Uh, my website is latorialfacing.com. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. I'm on, I'm on what used to be known as Twitter. <laughs> X. 
Uh, my books are at Amazon.com, Barnes and Noble. You may find them at other places. Um, I actually come out and do visits. So if you'd like to have me come, poetry readings, writing seminars. Um, I love to spend time in schools. My busiest three months of the year are February through April. February, Black History Month, March, Women's History Month, and April, National Poetry Month. Um, and so, you know, do check out my work. Um, the latest book I wrote was The Miseducation of the Negro. This is a standalone. It's it's history. So if you want to know the history of, of Black education and all education in America, grab this book. Um, if you have a kid that you want to inspire to write a dissertation, grab this book. It comes in hardback and softback. But as for my poetry, my last poetry collection was Mother to Son, inspired by Langston Hughes. And it's about all the, it, it, it has pictures of, of what, what a reaction to the violence that happens to black boys like Trayvon Martin. But probably my three most popular books is a trilogy collection titled 28 Days of Poetry Celebrating Black History. I wrote those books, uh, writing a poem for Black History Month for three straight years, every day in February. And they were the result. Um, great books to share with young readers and old. But you can find my books um, online and you can find me at any of the social media sites. Thank you for having me. Listen, it was definitely an honor. I mean, you know, I love their conversation. I'm sure our listeners and viewers love their conversation. And um, as everyone knows who's, you know, watching on Spotify, listening on Amazon Music, Audible, Apple Podcasts, Google Google Podcasts, iHeart um, Podcast Network, as well as Pandora. Make sure every week you check us out on Wednesdays at 7 a.m. We'll drop a new episodes and make sure you subscribe so you won't miss conversations such as these. And every week we're going to help you prepare for takeoff. Thanks for joining us.